You're listening to the fifth episode of Season 2 of The Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. As in Season 1, this podcast goes into a strict Christian upbringing and traditional isolationist church climate not working out, but it is not intended as an attack on faith. In fact, it's mainly about trying to retain some connection to God despite everything and everyone. It's also about depression and words and music. Each episode is me explaining what was going on in my life that occasioned the writing of a song from my unreleased follow-up concept album, Peter Gray Grows Up. I'll continue for the two of you who are still listening. Episode 5, Eugene's Poem. I mentioned in previous podcasts how much I longed for a mentor back in the day. A splinter, Mr. Miyagi, Ben Kenobi, Yoda, Gandalf, or whoever. As a kid, I would have loved it if Albert Hayhoe or someone like him had been my mentor, but he was far too busy traveling the globe preaching, so he wouldn't have had time for that, and those who followed in his footsteps had only one kind of advice to offer in total. Wait for the rapture. Go to meeting, read your Bible, and pray every day. Do not, under any circumstances, party or entertain yourselves. In fact, do not go in search of your own identity. Surrender all that to God, <coughs> the, the brethren, they, I mean he, will see to all of it for you. Just address all your prayers to God, P.O. Box, the North Pole, postal code H-O-H-O-H-O. And besides, we as Christians aren't to make much of anything of ourselves. We are to make much of the assembly, I mean God, instead. I told all my little life troubles to anyone who'd listen, and they had little to offer either. Well, I met the Vetter family, and they were the first brethren people who seemed to know about a great many things that I didn't know about that I wanted to know about. I hoped they'd initiate me into whatever it was they were. I phoned, emailed, and visited whenever I could. Michael's brethren father took a walk with me on my first visit to their house to see what I was looking for in life, what was going on with me, and I poured my heart out to him. The girl I loved, not the redhead, a different one, was with another guy, not Michael, a a different guy. I had my place robbed and all my stuff stolen at school. I thought maybe I'd failed all of my final year of university courses. I'd applied to teacher's college and not gotten in the first year. I had no job and no hope of one. I'd been suffering depression for years and it was getting worse. My home assembly, Nepean, was about to have a worldwide division that year and had been systematically ostracizing me and was clearly planning on kicking me and many others out too. Michael's dad gave me his advice. Stop talking about yourself. Stop thinking about yourself. Learn gratitude. Learn to read rooms. And most importantly, learn to shut up. You have nothing of value to contribute to our conversations. So read your Bible and shut up. In scriptural terms, study to be silent. He meant this literally. He gave me an assignment. Read the Bible and find as many verses in it as possible that went into the virtues of being silent. Well, none of that worked out for me either. I'm not good at silent. I'm sure you're shocked to hear this breaking news. And I have been told to be silent by my own father and the brethren my whole life, for reasons I generally found quite suspect. Hell, Peter Brohart used to tell me to shut up in the calf at lunchtime so he could talk the whole time. And actually, i found that's why people tend to tell people to shut up more than any other reason. People tell others to shut up because they find them annoying or they disagree with what they're saying, of course, 
But in my experience, when someone goes to the trouble and social awkwardness of literally telling someone else to stop talking altogether, it's because they themselves wish to talk more. You know who tells people to shut up least of all? People who say the least. You know who tell others to shut up the most? People who talk the most, because they want to talk even more. And in any room, Mr. Vetter either insisted on being the one talking, or he wanted everyone listening to his eldest son, Mark. My brother Mark is God, Mark's older sister Karen used to say, and she was only partly kidding. Michael's older brother Mark seemed to want to be a mentor, not to me, but to a few other brethren guys, mostly a guy named Doug, who was kind of like Mark's apprentice. Mark was a short, muscular guy, while Doug was tall and slender. Whatever Mark did, he seemed to thrive at. Often, Mark did something, then Doug did it too, and it didn't work out as well for Doug. For example, Mark cut his own hair. You couldn't tell at all. Doug started cutting his own hair too. You really could. Mark generally drove his car playfully, comedically, like a reckless idiot in a movie, often places that weren't intended to have cars there to begin with. Mark never had car accidents. Doug frequently had car accidents. The Bible speaks of flint sharpening flint and also of iron sharpening iron. I think it's talking about having friends who call you on your stuff, friends who keep you on your toes, who hold you to a high standard. I felt like I was an iron knife blade that had been repeatedly beaten against the rock that our group thought of as a sharpening stone and noted that this resulting in nicked, bent, broken blades was how they apparently liked sharpening to work among the gathered saints. To be blunt, keen minds were not welcomed there, especially from young people. As to the other brethren young people around here, I often felt like talking to them was like trying to sharpen an iron blade on some jello. I needed more than anything the chance to regularly talk to people who were a fair bit smarter than me, people I could talk to who would not only understand what I was saying and not complain about it being deep, but knock holes in it if it was necessary and bring in thoughts of their own to match, people who might accuse me of being shallow, people who had to contribute thoughts that I hadn't and maybe wouldn't have already thought myself. The vetters were definitely smarter than me. Mark had been able to solve Rubik's Cubes and beat adults at chess from a young age and randomly did things like casually quote all of the words to a hymn from the Little Flock hymn book only backwards, starting with the last word in the hymn and ending with the first. The whole family were far smarter than I'd ever be. Problem was, I'm maybe not the sanest knife in the drawer, but they were crazier than me too. And especially in the young, and in people who are performing all the time, a bit of craziness can be fascinating. A disproportionately large number of our most brightly shining performers, comedians, singers, TV show hosts, actors, are riding energetic, burning the candle at both ends kinds of highs most of us would need drugs to achieve. Ben Stiller, Mel Gibson, Carrie Fisher, Russell Brand, Amy Winehouse, David Williams, Kurt Cobain, Britney Spears, Phil Spector, Charlie Sheen, Frank Sinatra, Spike Milligan, Robert Munch, Edvar Munch, Vincent Van Gogh, Edgar Allan Poe, Sir Isaac Newton, Marilyn Monroe, and Stephen Fry, and for young people, Robert Downey Jr., Demi Lovato, David Harbour, Selena Gomez, and Kanye West. All of those. They burn so bright and stand out from the rest because they're revving a bit high for good mental health. But there's a flip side to their lives, a very dark side, to match the too bright brightness. For a few years there, so many people were visiting and staying at the Vetter house that it got like a commune. The Vetter parents, seeing that their adult kids were not only never going to move out and leave home, but were also having additional people over all the time, 
decided that they would themselves move out of the house to Manhattan, and so they did years later. I was never depressed when I was at the Vetters. Part of this is simply what happens when you're in a funk in your room at home and you leave the country and go somewhere else. You find you've left behind everything that reminds you of what you were worried about and everything that enables you to continue your depression routine back home. Well, everything and everyone where you've gone now feeds your brain much less familiar everything to chew on while you're away. It felt like going to Rivendell or something. There were harsh words and arguments and so on, but that familiar old nothing-new-for-months depression didn't seem to be able to get in the door there. Everything was always different, and the vetters generally insisted on that as they got bored easily. We all went out to meetings, of course, and it was hilarious to watch what a chaotic mess it made simply to put a bit of honesty and truth into an event that was structured the way Brethren discussions were. We have to do everything, young people, absolutely everything we do, think or say, no matter how trivial, 100% according to the blessed word of God, according to the Lord's will for us in that moment, Carl Newton would say. If we don't know the Lord's will, we cannot act. We have to wait on the Lord on every single thing we do. Well, we can't really do that, can we? Mark would say in the middle of Tuesday evening Bible study. And still live our lives? I mean, I can't say to myself each morning, I'm brushing my teeth in the way that I know is the Lord's will, as laid out in the Bible, using the toothpaste of the Lord's choosing that he has revealed to me. That just doesn't work. And there would be flustered silence. A lot of biblical grandstanding and position-taking just didn't seem as smart if you threw some honesty and practicality, some mundane reality in its direction. A lot of it was revealed to be empty rhetoric. We were in our early 20s. We had life decisions to make. We needed something more than that. We'd all be at a Bible conference, and old Mr. Little would give a big talk about essentially the same thing as Carl Newton, as this was a popular theme, not making your own decisions, letting God make them, surrendering all to him. And I'd see Mr. Little sitting by himself afterward and see if I could go ask him a little bit more about his ideas of the Lord's will. He would be delighted because no one else seemed terribly interested in talking to him about what he just preached on for an hour. I'd explain that I'd been reading C.S. Lewis's Apologetics, carefully not using the word apologetics because I knew most brethren people didn't know that word, and I'd still see Mr. Little's respect for and patience with me start to fray at this point. C.S. Lewis wasn't a brethren author. I would also not mention that I'd taken a first-year philosophy course while at university a couple of years prior. I didn't want the lecture about the arrogant folly and uselessness of man's human thinking. But I'd ask Mr. Little my question. Okay, let's say that you're at point A in your life, and it's a decision point. You have to choose to go to point B or point W. Point B is the Lord's will for you. So if you choose it, you end up at points C and D and E and so on, and things will go well, and you will be blessed. But say you get the Lord's will wrong, or don't care enough to wait on the Lord at that point in your life, and you follow your own will instead and choose point W. It's not the Lord's will for you, so things work out badly at point W, obviously. Now, here's my question. Does God meet you at point W and work with you to sort things out and get somewhere good from there? Or do you have to backtrack entirely to point B, repent of your error, start all over again, and make that decision correctly, even though time has passed, before the Lord will work with you? Mr. Little was clearly confused, but doubled down. You had to backtrack right to the beginning, 
repent of your not following the Lord's mind, and make decision B properly later before the Lord could work with you. Well, I reasoned, life and time sometimes don't work like that. Sometimes, once you've made decision W, now you're pregnant, or you've aborted the child, or gotten addicted to something, or the money has now been spent, or the house has been sold, or you're no longer working at that job, or she's married another guy. Would God work with you, even though it was now too late to ever get back to point B far, far in your past? It might be too late. Some decisions could not be undone. Life often worked like that. Mr. Little, predictably, then kindly gave me the dreaded lecture about the arrogant folly and uselessness of man's merely human thinking and strongly recommended I stop it, prayerfully. Like Michael, Mark drew things, fascinating, intricate architectural sketches mostly. Like Hitler's art, it was mostly buildings and very few people. And mathematical charts with numbers. The numbers seemed to say things to Mark they didn't say to me. And Mark took poetry much more seriously than any of us. I loved his poetry. It was traditional and modern by turns. It was silly and snarky and dark and funny. It was purposely childish in an environment where most people were painfully earnest about their poems. Above all, it was intended to confuse and confound. Mark went out to poetry reading events regularly and read his poems at them. People liked them and found him fascinating too. Mark always had that Charles Manson thing. People just found him fascinating and wanted to hear him speak especially emotionally unstable people, troubled people, needy people, desperate people, people in search of meaning. I was one of those people. I was like a fencing student who was learning fencing from books but knew no one around who was learning swordplay too. I had no fencing partner to practice parries and repasts, cuts and guards, no one to call me out if my footwork was sloppy or my lunges overcommitted me. I've only taken up fencing recently, so back then it was things like writing poetry or figuring out what the Bible meant or didn't mean by soul, spirit, and body, and if there were clear distinctions in its use of those terms or stuff about the Lord's will. I was learning all of that alone. No one at meeting was remotely interested in discussing it with me. All of that had changed. Suddenly I'd moved on from people who said, You wrote a poem? Like another one? Hmm. To ones who said, Your poetry is like that? Mine is like this. I wrote one today that doesn't sound like any of my previous ones. I did this thing. Check it out. Mark liked that I wanted to hear his poetry. He liked when I laughed at the funny bits that many people miss the funny in. For example, I laughed spontaneously at the line, The lovely little llamas alleviate their loads, because I knew it was a poop joke. Apparently no one had laughed at that before. Well, if there's anything rural Canadian brethren folks know, it's poop jokes. As Robertson Davies wrote, in rural, religious Canadian circles, bedroom jokes were absolutely inappropriate, but bathroom jokes were welcomed. There was an absurdist bent to Mark's poetry, for sure. I wanted to write things people would feel in their gut and get stuck in their head because they'd experienced something similar or saw things that way too, but had maybe never managed to put it into words as I had. My favorite thing is when I manage to put someone else's thoughts and feelings into a quotable soundbite they can use later. It's like handing them exactly the right tool for the job they're doing. I think Mark absolutely delighted in being too unique for anyone to understand him. I think he was a puzzle of his own creation. Here's a poem by Mark entitled, Too Bad About the Pancakes, or Thanks Anyway, I'll Just Sit. Part 1. The early frost came late today. It often seems to be this way, and ice is not the friendly type. It waited while the time was ripe. The early birds may have a gripe. They usually have to have their say. 
They had it too, so anyway, the early frost came late today. Part 2. The early frost was late today. The sky was ashen, crisp, and gray, and passing by a single rat refused to comment much on that. Suffice to say, he turned away and left us here. He wouldn't stay. He may have noticed. Anyway, the early frost was late today. Part 3. The early frost was late today. It's such a shame to see it lay in fading flakes too far or near to hang around and disappear. It isn't gone yet. It's still here. The flakes can fade, and yet they stayed. Look at all the frost they made. The fading frost is such a shame. The fading flakes are still the same. It doesn't matter if they change. I think it more than kind of strange that fading flakes don't go away as long as frost is here to stay. Part 4. The early frost was lost today, or late. The later frost was great. Perhaps the early frost was great, or late. The greater frost was late. The early birds cannot relate to where it's not. Perhaps I'm late, but I'm still here. The frost is cold. The flakes grow weary when they're old. The frost is old. It's here to stay. I'd rather have it be this way. The younger rats are turning gray. The early frost came late today. The early birds had built a wall. They hoped it wouldn't come at all. It's funny how I'm not afraid to disregard the path I made. There's more, of course, to that one than I will take the time to read here. Many of the poems were more than a page long. Many of the poems had illustrations with them. I mainly liked this mostly non-rhythmic, irregularly rhyming poem because Mark's stated intention had been to read a poem at Wednesday Poetry Night in Harrisburg and have every single person in the room convinced he'd written the poem about her. Be careful, this poem isn't nice. And it doesn't say anything remotely kind or sweet either. It's not profound, neither. You have an ugly face. Think about it. If you really looked good, why would you worry about it 23 and a half hours every day? when you're not picking your nose or something just as gross anyway. I saw a dead squirrel on the road. He got run over by cars and trucks and stuff until there wasn't a trace. I just threw that in. If it bothers you, go back over and don't read it. I think it probably bothered the squirrel. I once heard of a little girl. She got run over too. It was terrible. Let's not think about it. Let's be sweet and happy, incredibly sappy. And that poem worked too. Many young women, and Mark was proud to say some young men too, came up and tried to get him to admit that he'd really written that poem thinking of them the whole time. They were certain. And he was kidding too, right? Mark was always kidding, and always a bit not as well. It always reminded you that you were not being allowed in. He was one of those people who can't talk to you without the mask, the persona, ever. He had this aura of driven seriousness wrapped in a playful messing with everyone nearby. Talking to Mark one had the impression that everyone else was just pretending to do their jobs, be experts, or things like that, but that he was doing the real things for real. The meeting people pretended to have all the Bible answers. He, Mark maintained, actually had them, or if he didn't, he was in the midst of discovering them and had recently had several breakthroughs. Mark would often tell people about how he had had many Bible questions as a young Bible-reading teen, and because the old brethren guys clearly hadn't thought about these kinds of questions or about much of anything, being believers rather than thinkers, they simply told young Mark, All of the answers you'll ever need are between the pages of this precious book, and patted their Bible quite intimately in a manner that clearly said, Go away, young man, and stop bothering us with these stupid random questions. Everybody knows the Bible makes sense, but you're making it sound like it doesn't. Well, Mark related, taking them at their word, he started looking for answers to his own very odd questions in the Bible itself. 
and he felt like he started finding them, and it freaked out everyone at meeting, because that wasn't supposed to actually happen. Mark's theme was clear. They were fakers, like pretty much everyone. Phonies. Frauds. Corrupt, turned aside into political and social agendas, and trying not to get caught being corrupt incompetence. Politicians, lawyers, doctors, police, clergymen, professors, and scientists. All corrupt fakers. He was the real deal, and was reaching out to others who were also the real deal. Were we the real deal? Many of us were intoxicated at the very idea of there being a real deal. Our experience of adults in our church, just like we had had at school, was that there seemed to be very little straightforward or effective about many of them. At meeting, they acted like Christianity and the Bible only worked if you pretended they did, or otherwise did whatever it took to make them appear to work. Christianity, for many people, was knowingly, purposely believing a bunch of things that made no sense to you or to anyone else whatsoever. One evening, early on, when a bunch of us were staying over at the Vetter's house for a holiday weekend, most people had gone to bed, and I was on the main floor when Mark came up from the basement with a bath towel over his arm. We started talking, and I asked him what he'd been doing. I was taking a shower in the basement, he said quite casually, though I knew there was no shower in the basement, and he knew that I knew that. While talking, Mark started to head upstairs, so I followed him, and in his room he took a tall can of Samuel Smith's oatmeal stout out from under his bath towel, popped the top, and began drinking it. He looked smug, triumphant. There was great mischief in the idea of there being various brethren people in the house, many of whom certainly never imbibed alcohol, and Mark was sneaking beer upstairs to his room and drinking it in there while reading his Bible before bed as he always did. An important brethren missionary was sleeping under that very roof, unaware of this covert joy being had. Mark was very witty. He always had that Oscar Wilde thing, where his answers would dismantle and mock your questions, but you wouldn't mind because he was clever and funny. He was the master of the backhanded compliment. I told Mark that late one night, walking up my road, a drunk guy from a party had come out around midnight, and thinking I was the gay guy from up the road, had smashed a beer bottle on my face, which hurt, but somehow utterly failed to break the skin, despite filling my hair and clothing with beer and pieces of shattered beer bottle. Before I'd ever dared risking my place in the meeting by actually trying beer myself, I'd had one all over me. I wasn't gay, but I'd been gay-bashed, sure enough. Mark laughed at this. When I told him about the Brethren Light guy telling people I was gay and shouldn't be allowed to teach children, and how tired I was of Christian people accusing me of being gay for being in any way different from them, Mark just said, That's, That's ridiculous. ridiculous. You could never, never be, be gay. gay. You don't have, have nearly really complex enough a personality for it. Mark himself was always surrounded by girls and flirted oddly with them. It was hard to tell if he was toying with and dominating them or playing submissive, likely a bit of both, kept them guessing, certainly. Many of them hovered around him like bees around a blossom, determined to figure him out and get his attention. Nathan Vedder was the kind of brethren person who knew who various pop stars and actors were, for example, Madonna, Leonardo DiCaprio, Meg Ryan, Jim Carrey, and Polly Shore, and the ones he didn't like and was tired of, he would quite sincerely pray to God each night that they'd die of AIDS. He'd tell you this with a grin, like he was kidding, but he also wasn't, though he knew he was being funny. Brethren people were supposed to read our Bibles and pray. Nathan prayed that all of the members of Nickelback and Matchbox 20 and Cheryl Crow and Chris O'Donnell would all soon die of AIDS. The one thing his brother Mark really could not do that the rest of the family could was sing. Mark couldn't even write music for other people to sing. 
So one time, I took a copy of one of Mark's poems he'd put in a section of a book of his poetry called Songs, and decided I would secretly turn it into an actual song by singing it. Collaboration. It's what I was always looking to do in my 20s. Doing the stuff I like to do, but not by myself. So I did. I had a four-track recording of it waiting for the next time Mark was in town to surprise him with it. Mark and crew didn't start gentle. They went from not smoking to smoking pipes, filterless camels, and little cigars. They went from not drinking alcohol to drinking stout and straight whiskey. Many of us grew up not only needing to be quiet and still and meek at church and meeting, but in our homes as well. Many of us lived in homes where the cheddar cheese and salsa sauce were alike mild, the ice cream unrelentingly vanilla, and the potato chips regular. One time my sister and I threw out most of my mom's spices because they were so old we couldn't smell much difference between the cinnamon and the garlic powder she was still using 20 years after she'd bought them. We craved intense experiences. The vetters were Irish Germans, as was Doug, and they loved Irish drinking songs and the idea of Irish people as being hot-tempered, charming, feisty little people who could sing and drink and dance and fight. Doug loved this Scottish drinking song Mark had on a CD. Look at the coffin with golden handles. Isn't it grand, boys, to be bloody well dead? Let's not have a sniffle. Let's have a bloody good cry. Always remember the longer you live, the sooner you bloody well die. Look at the So I thought I needed to make my music for Mark's lyrics as Irish as I could, which wasn't terribly Irish. I recorded a simple version of it and played it for Mark the next time he was in town. He braced himself, pleased that I'd paid attention to his poem, confused as to why I'd chosen the one I had, and assumed I was going to make some kind of music in a style he wouldn't like. He listened carefully to the whole thing from beginning to end. Then he said, you know, I was really going to hate that. And then actually I didn't. Years later, I was briefly in the band that suited me best of all. Jay from school's brother Tyler was seemingly able to play any instrument, and after being the bass player in yet another let's play all the same classic rock stuff all the other middle-aged cover bands are playing cover band with me and Jay, suggested he and I, and his girlfriend at the time Danielle, form an acoustic quiet band specializing in any slow, quiet, sad song that might well have been in the soundtrack of a movie by perhaps... Quentin Tarantino or someone like that. I don't know if this live performance in his brother's band with me singing had helped influence his decision.
The three of us often shared bits of songs, with one doing a line here and handing it off to someone else for the next one. vocals in French on one song with Danielle, who is Franco-Ontarian. It went well. I learned more about harmony and playing simple lead guitar on acoustic, as Tyler and Danielle mostly didn't do that, so it was my job. It was nice being someone other than the guy stuck playing bass or backup acoustic because he couldn't do lead guitar or sing rock vocals as well as everyone else. And most of those rocking out bands cared nothing for harmony vocals anyway. But Tyler, Danielle, and I, we were all about that. I learned a lot. It didn't last too long. Neither did Tyler and Danielle. But I enlisted them, my bandmates at the time, to help me finish a new version of what I called Eugene's Poem, Eugene being the name I decided to give Mark's analog in my fictionalized Peterverse. I wanted the vocals to sound more than a bit like Shane McGowan of the Pogues. Dirty old town, dirty old town, clouds are drifting across the moon. Thing is, Tyler has never been a terribly confident singer, but I believed he could sing a lot more like Shane McGowan than I ever could, effortlessly being able to put that shouting, drinking, and smoking rasp into his singing voice in a way I never could. So, I had him replace my lead vocal. Small fuzzy creatures with mint on their fangs A warble of pickles and lost hunger pangs We'll wake up in hunger, we'll feed us on doubt Dream on the light till it radiates out Small fuzzy creatures with mint on their fangs will warble of pickles and lost hunger pangs Wake up in hunger, we'll feed us on doubt Dream on the light till it Then doubled his raspy vocal with a quiet one of me afterward. But small fuzzy creatures with mint on their fangs will warble of pickles and lost hunger pangs. Wake up in hunger, will feed us on doubt. Dream on the light till it radiates out. 
had Danielle sing on it too. something a bit Enya. I wanted the whole band. I got George in his music store to do drums for me. also pulled a mandolin down from the wall and played it for me on this song. I liked how George dropped a stick and laughed at the end of the drum take we kept. Every time something human like that picked up in a mic when I was recording, I liked leaving it in and adding to the awareness that people had worked together to make this, and that it wasn't just endless layers of me trying to counterfeit chemistry with myself once again. Stream. 